Hi everyone, welcome to the AI of Mankind show, where I share anything interesting about mankind. I'm your host for this season. My name is Andrew Liu. I've worked across four continents and 12 international cities. Also, I've worked in tech startups across a range of roles from selling products, making customer happy, figuring out fundraising, making finance tick, building teams, and developing sticky products. Apart from building startups, I've also worked in Fortune 500 companies as a chief data scientist or technologist or people leader. You can call me Jack of all trades or master of learning. I hope to make this podcast show a great learning experience for us. In each season, there is a series of interesting things where I invite guests to share their views about their life and interests. Now let the show begin. In the previous episode, Ruben shared his views on the chicken rice hawker future. Ruben shared his view on the beautiful future of AI and the possible need for universal benefit income. This episode continued the part 4 conversation with Ruben and Ruben shared his career advice on how to build a career in AI, digital and data. Let's continue. And I wanted to point out that in the job market, employers are not the only players. Potential employees still actually assume that they will be unwilling to join a company that does not invest in them and help them with their skills and their career. And this will result in a vicious cycle of those with skills talent leaving the company and making potential employees even more apprehensive about joining that place. So coming back, you mentioned these days, the younger generation of talent or employees no longer will just look at just pay itself, but does the company really invest in is people in terms of like giving them an opportunity to learn. So talking about that, and we also experienced it before, there are some teams or some subculture department that they say, hey, Robert, I support you. You go and do the learning. Then you ask them, hey, this thing maybe I need to learn, let's say NLP. It'll probably take me maybe a three months or six months to learn and successfully complete working project to learn about Sure, this doesn't work. What do you have to say about some of the managers that they pay leap service to say, you go and learn, but then in three days, give me a task done. What do you have to say about that? I feel like this is not the way. This is not a good tech culture. I feel tech culture, you really have to be very flexible. In, in the tech paradigm, there's Ajar and Waterfall. I still prefer Waterfall in a sense because it's really, very really hard to give estimates, especially for the 20 and things are new. Maybe if you do something that's very established, like web development, things are very simple. I want a new picture on this thing with the page or terms very simple application. Then yeah, maybe agile makes sense. But when it comes to exploration, learning new things, it does not make sense to actually force you to a timeline because it is when it comes to learning, it's best to try. And when you try sometimes you inevitably you inevitably hit blockers. And these blockers without proper guidance, it's going to be very difficult to get past them. And it's just not realistic to accept people to solve them in the day or two sometimes. People can get blocked for a very long time. Maybe they can put it on a pole. They can just work on some of the cards at hand. Then they will get an inspiration in the middle of somewhere. Then they can come and attempt the problem again. So I think that this is how it is when it comes to R and D. It's very hard to force innovation. I sort of resonate with you in that. I think one of the telltale signs of whether a company really say what they mean or put the time and effort to where they believe that they invest in training or skilling is that you look at two things. One is the number of projects they put you onto and the time that they give you a buffer to fail and learn and continuously to reach something. So like we mentioned, right, three days 
to learn and come up with something in the new world in R&D, whether it's AI or creative projects, is just ridiculously too short a time. I would say maybe three months or six months on one particular project. And also the number of projects that the individual is to work on. I feel that the range shouldn't be more than two to three because if it's more than four or five up to six, then the guy will never be able to focus on like one or two of the hard blockers to work it out. He will be like, a, in Singapore time we call it the roti prata and in the Western world it's called it pancake. You spread so thin and it breaks. In your case, what is a good magic number in terms of number of projects and the timeline for each project? I will agree with you on the number because there's two or three. Camera right, it always depends on how big the scale is. But I feel like the most important thing for R&D stuff is accountability and transparency. Don't give a timeline, but you will set check-in instead. So maybe, let's say, I'm working with you. I'm trying to invest something. Maybe I want to invent an automated prototyper now. <laughs> so maybe I just check in with you and drop off it. I just, I just walk through with you what I did. And then you're not just a manager. You are like a leader. So you say, hey, okay, you try this approach and you feel no worries. Have you tried doing this? How about this direction? So you just send these ideas. Like we're working together as a team, you're pushing in a common direction. It's not that you do this. No, this is definitely a very toxic culture. Like. And I believe everybody wants to do more innovation will, will come out in this kind environment. Yeah, yeah. This is also why a lot of all the tech companies I'm a fan of rather now men, uh, because Facebook has changed its name. I believe they have this 80% view, like 80% of time is spent implementing projects and so on. 50% of the time is spent just being creative, just trying stuff. There's a lot of room for failure. And this, this is very crucial to their success. You mean to experiment and grow and occasionally fail. I really also believe in that uh, there's such learning and investment of uh, skilling to allow people to roam to a certain degree, like some psychological safety so that they can be more effective at getting things done. But then there are some business leaders that need to be more patient, need to be more chill because they have to think that, hey, if I spend too much money on R&D, nothing gets out. The company is not making money. I'll be out of job. I think it takes a lot of courage. Don't you think? It's really because it's always a risk. So I can understand that there was a under trip. So I believe that's why it's best to have someone probably working on something that actually can make profit. And at the same time, give them some paths that could that then the moon trip. And if the company gives themselves in a sense like a VC, if they do this across all the company, so might like we have hundred projects, maybe like like if you just need one, become an amazing product, then you can actually make money off. And I think I believe this is how the law of large numbers work in a sense, like, and how VCs work. So I believe this is only more applicable to larger than media companies. Like if you're a small company, you're gonna take this risk. I feel like it's it's a bit more difficult because in a sense your opportunity cost is a bit higher. Smaller companies, tech startup, yes, opportunity cost of making mistakes is higher, but also they move fast because there's no baggage. Here, the assumption is they go into uncharted territories where regulation hasn't formed yet. So you're free to go, like say, uh, when a situation where 50, 100 years ago, banks wasn't even a term. There was no regulatory job. The amount of money you need to lend or the amount of money you need to hold. And therefore, you can experiment. And so if you think from an uh, uh, uncharted territory where regulatory hasn't formed, startups are able to tell their new people that, hey, hey go ahead and try, go ahead and fail because... I like a very big bank or an airline where you screw up one thing and then the regulatory come after you and eventually there's so much constraint. What do you think about that? Oh, I personally believe that this is the best position to be in. Because 
you don't bring your own thing to really lose about it. When you succeed, it's so mind-blowing. It just disrupts everything. I believe that's the next place to be. Huh? But when it comes to existing companies, they do have a lot of things that they need, they need to balance as well. For example, sometimes there's a lot of negative that's going to weigh you down. And sometimes there's really no chance. Huh? Then it's quite reasonable for medium and large to take this out of risk. But small, it's a bit harder. Unless they're very flexible, the benefits are amazing risk. A small company, the work process could really be a lot faster. So you can experiment a lot more. One of the, the downsides of coaching and larger companies, there's a lot of people that's the risk specializing stuff, which can also be a good thing because they're good at what they do. You already know what you want to do, Rashi, but the look for the person is, can you remove the topic to apply for? So sometimes things like that can slow you down. Like a big companies, just to get data, maybe you have to go through three or four people because data governance, you have to go through cybersecurity, different protocols, like six, seven steps. By the time it's already three weeks and your boss say, hey, why are you still not doing any expiratory data? Oh, boss, because I spent three weeks just to get the data. Whereas in a startup, you'll be like, oh, you need the data? Do a two-factor authentication on the, as a Microsoft or Google Cloud. Bam. Within two days, you got it, right? Now, coming back to the learning, how do you think about learning because of enormous amount of knowledge that you mentioned about companies or even employees should do cross-sharing? So what does cross-sharing or cross-learning means to you? Yeah, I believe it's sharing when you've done that great. What you learn that forget what kind of skills you picked up. In, in a more data sense, let's say companies to very young and their data journey. Yeah. So then let's say they send a couple of guys to go in and make something more simple classification problem. And then these guys maybe they are from the business background. So they study the explore and maybe they come out with some kind of a simple regression. And then what they can do is they can actually just go and share the rest of the colleagues. So hey, this is why we did it. This is how we did it. These are the resources. Then we can say, hey, does anybody else think that this is framework that we have done? This whole system that we have built in the company itself, can it apply to other things? And then you do various two ways. One, people learn things. Number two, there's potential for other products to benefit and more work to be done and more value to be added by this stuff. I see. So basically you get people to share their past projects, like what works, what doesn't work. And so that the good learning practices can be transmitted across different people. I thought about that, about learning and technology. You have typically two schools of thought. One is we centralize all our technology stack and we, I don't call it force, but we make it a compliance for people to learn this stack. And the argument for that is that economy of skill, better control for the city. But then in the world, like you say, that we are living today, a lot of things are changing, a lot of technology is changing. And it's actually much slower to move it because imagine like you have a few thousand, a few hundred people using a specific stack and suddenly you want to move them. It needs a lot of uh, preparation and orchestration. And maybe the stack is too old. So therefore, no new people are willing to come. They're like, Wow, people are now using like Python or Julia for AI. Now you're still using a C plus or some ancient language. And therefore HR will say, hey, it's very hard to recruit people for this old language. Then the other extreme school of thought where the more liberal CTO or CIO, they say, hey, what is we call it the bring your own device or bring your own tools, meaning to say that, okay, you have been the cutting edge in learning, let's say NLP and Python. We don't have Python, but... So long Python doesn't infringe any risk to my copy, just bring Python in. We will pay for it. $500, $2,000. Immediately in stock without writing a hundred page documents on why you need to introduce Python to the system. A, a very decentralized way of for any software 
as long as meeting the compliance limit. So these two schools of thought, what is your preference and why? Thinking most people who prefer the second way like, to be able to just pick whatever they want because one, uh, there's no need familiarity. I've certainly asked to, uh, I have done R before, but honestly, I'm actually in a very long time because for most all of the data science community and machine learning community has been shifting towards Python and a bit that there's some migration towards GL, but it's still in the early days. Uh, I would definitely willing to learn speed based required, but that's it. Being able to learn because something fast is a sort of value. And I feel that being really flexible, this is just going to cost you in the long run. Like you have said in your example, person, that you're still running something that's very poor on Fortran now. Now, who's going to code in Fortran now? No, it is. You need to move on, get the time else to move to Python, Julia, JavaScript, really. And also, there's going to be the right tools for our right job, and you don't want to read and read. So, now here's the folks website. Show that thing you can do it in C. With so many JavaScript frameworks available, I'm not just pick one of them and let the developer choose. I believe you should just trust and confidence in your lead engineer to be able to go and evaluate all these type of things by themselves as well. So you're also a believer of like a decentralized, bring your own tools kind of stuff. When like you say, if you're an expert in Python and it's a cutting edge and eventually you bring it in, it's approved and it's, it will also over time will be centralized because you're bringing the best practices over time to the company. Now, coming back to learning, tell us more about what is your most book that you read for AI or data transformation or anything? What is your favorite? book that you go to or you read recently and why? I see. I actually don't really read books on AI. I look more on like tutorials in that same club. So I can share with you my favorite book instead. Mm. Yes, please. Go ahead. Okay, sure. Yeah, it's actually economics. Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner. So the book, right, yeah. I'm just finding it very interesting because it's just open sense, but it's stated so obviously and then done it in realistic and framework in mind. And the key message is just people respond to incentives. And, and not just people, actually. One of the examples from the book, right? It's about this dolphin. I think they were training the dolphin to pick up rubbish. So when, when the dolphin practice on rubbish, they were just doing topic food. So one day, this dolphin tied the rubbish underneath a rock. Then every time they want to just take a tiny bit of the rubbish, it brings it to the keepers and yet yeah, in this way. So I just finished out seeing very interesting on how, how people think. I, I like that book too. I think incentives are the concept idea that people respond to reward and there are many ways to structure rewards and there are many ways to understand how people respond to reward and by understanding that actually it helps us to better even figure out how to deploy an AI solution figure out what is in it for everybody in the stakeholders to get the data that you need figure out the problem set like who are the users how to figure out the incentive to get them to use to get the data or how to get them to use it in a way that it gets an output I believe in leadership is actually in being able to align everybody's wants and goals. So you need to see what incentive people have. You know, okay, this guy wants this to be done. This guy needs this, but this guy can have this. So if that's the case, that how do we go and reconcile this stuff? They need to be able to bring four people together to most of us a common vision. Yeah, definitely. Now, the next interesting question is, what is your favorite application or favorite software that you use most of the time or you recently use and why? I think for me, my favorite software would be quite a lot. I think it's just indispensable in any data space. I think it's very fast to write it and it's very simple and it's very readable. It's not overly clocked and it's very fast to decode. I like the language of the whole. I think I like the widow philosophy of making it right. It's really very nice to read and I find reading Python code it's very easy to understand what people are thinking while they're trying to do it. You like Python but what about the ID like uh, in terms of like the environment? I personally I use 
I use spider because I had this R before previously and web before R then use mainnet. So there's always this tool at the top right hand corner that will actually show me all my current variables. And if I'm using the data frame, I can just double click the data frame, open it up. And it's so that I can excel thing. Personally, do not like the because I find it very troublesome when I'm trying to troubleshoot to create a new cell. I just want to treat us. I just want to run a single line of code. I don't have to, I don't have to run the entire block. And Jupyter does not allow me this flexibility to do it fast. Whereas Spider does, there's the option to run just a single line. I know quite a few people, they are actually running VS Code and PyCharm. I think PyCharm is good. I've actually seen people use it before, but I just, I just didn't want to pick it up because I still, I still prefer Spider because it's something that I've been using for very long away. So you like Spider because you think it's easy to use and you're using it. You build a lot of mastery and proficiency. Jupyter, yeah, even though it's open source, even though it's free, but like the user interface creates a lot of effort, like you mentioned before. So for anybody like the fresh graduates or anybody who just want to make career switch into AI space or digital space, what are the top three career tips that you would think that would be useful for them now that you're into this space. And some of come from a serious background. I think a lot of people will probably be, the, be facing the same situation there. And those that are already in computer science, they may just be, uh, I do computer science, I can just go and get a like, role in computer science. Those that are not, and those that are considering joining, I think the first piece of advice will be that tech can be very hard. And it requires a lot of patience across the last few days. And you need to be daring. You cannot be afraid to fail. You just need to keep trying, especially when you're in the development environment. If you hit a roadblock, don't be afraid to ask for advice from your seniors or peers and so on. And I feel like you should join the industry. You to ensure they can break others because of the current high salary level. Otherwise, you'll probably experience a burnout. My second piece of advice is that after a certain point of confidence, the most important skill is communication. How you can communicate with other developer architects, business users, and even across cultures. Because nowadays, many businesses just spend multiple countries, multiple panzers, and so on. So being able to communicate clearly and effectively what you want and what you need is a very important skill. As well as the latest communication of what you want and what other people are trying to tell you. And I believe one of the skills that I use is actually to go and diagram things up because it just focuses people. It's just a very good way for everyone to get synced. Everyone has a reference, everyone's sort of at the same point. It's just a diagram. And it's a lot easier to get, get people to try to understand what they're trying to say. All right. Third and thing is that we should just keep in mind that at the end of the day, tech is just a tool and we are ultimately problem solvers. There's a huge potential for and many things to be done out there. And tech space is not just about coders. There's a lot of different other different roles like project managers, business handlers, architects, and so on. If you have an interest in the tech sector, but you find yourself not very good at coding, you can consider exploring these roles as well. And I believe if you were, if you are really interested, then you can be a PM and you don't just manage the project. You try to actively engage your developers, try to see what framework are they using, how, how are they writing code, how are they structuring code. And then from there on, you try to learn as well. I believe this will help you how we get work better because in the future you'll be able to wear short random advice for your developers. Even if it's not constructive, they'll end up thinking like, oh, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. And sometimes it is constructive. Hey, why didn't I think of that? This actually makes sense. I can actually ask for this alternative. A bonus advice, some not just tech, this one, just business in life. Like if you want to end can you find a problem, you provide a solution because that's where video is created. The first one was like to enable competency you advise people to learn coding and have a fearless approach to don't be afraid to make mistakes, don't be afraid to make errors, just keep going. And eventually you get mastery or at least the 
the attitude of mastery over time because a growth mindset is the same. The second one was don't ignore communication. Like being able to communicate with people gets you easily understand how things are being done, gets you easily set expectations. The third one is the tech is just the tools and we are problem solvers. And if we are able to solve problems and whatever language or whatever tools, then that way it enables anybody to go into think a career in AI a bit easier. And the fourth one is if you want to add value, find a problem and add the solution. Cool. So these are the four ones. What is that one ask that you want to get from the audience who are listening to this podcast show? What is it that you want from this audience. I'm sure if our audience is interested to know more of what I've done, connect with me, they can get me on LinkedIn. Cool. I'll share it with the audience. So thank you so much, Ruben. It was great having you in the show. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode. We have come to the end of part four with Ruben. And this is the end of the podcast series with Ruben. If this is the first time you are tuning in, remember to subscribe to this show. If you have subscribed to this show and love this episode, Please share it with your friends, family, and acquaintances. See you later and see you soon.